So welcome to the story of Sean and her vision of becoming an IC at her high-profile law firm in Toronto. She wanted so much to become a people manager. But as with all of us taking that big step, there are two major barriers standing in our way. One is actually getting the role. And second is the real, more challenging barrier, which is becoming the great leader that we always envisioned ourselves actually being. And I'll be the first to confess that the leadership is so much easier on paper. We all know what we need to do, but the actual doing of it, the getting out of the weeds, the giving away of the Lego, this is the hardest part of being a new leader. Little did she know it, though, Sean helped to create the perfect model. Hello, and thanks for tuning into the Cobra Yogi Podcast. This is your host, Julie Zuzak. This pod is your dedicated time for growth, developing practical tools to use with your team and in your other relationships, and to learning deeply about who you are and what makes you tick. You are a brilliant and powerful being, and I want you to invest some time into reflecting on who you are being, not just what you are doing. Doing is awesome, but being, well, that's where the magic happens, and that's what makes you feel truly fulfilled. So you're going to love this episode on the circle of control model and learning about other models that are easy to use. So here's a look at what you're going to learn today. In the first segment, I will introduce you to the powerful world of models. Then in the second segment, I share my favorite models that I use all the time with clients. And then in the last segment, number three, I'll share how to use the circle of control model with your team and with others. So get out of your head, into your heart, and let's dive right in, shall we? The other day, I was walking a client through a model, and I realized that this is something that I really want to do more of because she was really grasping onto it quickly, and she was excited to be able to take it and use it with her team. Now, models are powerful, and they share an outside perspective to help us understand our current situation, which inspires us to take action in new ways. Now, I want to use models more, and I knew that this would benefit not only your understanding of how to use them, but by walking through a couple really good ones, you would have them instantly in your pocket, and you could use them right away. So there's so many different type of models. Some are complex, they have a lot of different components, and some are just two components and really look simple to use. But let's start out by talking about how they work. So models give us an outside perspective of looking at our current situation. So often when we're looking at a difficult situation, we get in the habit of trying to approach it the same way that we always have. It's like that great Einstein quote, no problem can be solved from the same level of consciousness that created it. We have to bring in a fresh uh, perspective. We have to bring in new information and new ideas. So to be honest, this is a big part of what we do in coaching. The challenging part is getting people to look at their situation differently. Now, this can be done in real time where they look at the options that are available to them. It can also be done as a tool in advance of the situation where we create a variety of different perspectives and call upon those perspectives on an as-needed basis. 
Let me share a few different personal examples. We'll start by talking about the real-time options available to us in the moment. Now, I shared a few episodes ago about being given the archetype of the dominatrix. And while it is primarily something that we would call an archetype or use as an archetype, it really offers us a different perspective of how we would approach things in a different way. So examples of this would be to show up more confident, be stronger, be more demanding, to be louder. Other examples of archetypes would be to uh, have the motivational speaker, which puts people into the mindset of being more confident, more self-aware, where they believe in themselves and the message that they have to share, and it helps them to focus their personal brand and really be seen and heard in a powerful way. Another popular and highly resisted archetype is the flower child or the hippie. No one ever wants to be given the hippie archetype. And it may be because it feels like it's not acceptable in the corporate world. You know, so much of why and how we're here is about suiting up and getting that corporate armor on to be protected. And before Brene Brown popularized it, vulnerability wasn't really a thing. Even though now many of us recognize it as a strength, it's something that we need to build the muscle of. So dominatrix, motivational speaker, flower child, these are all examples of temporary perspectives that we might tap into the wisdom of so that we can easily use those skills in the moment. So here's some different examples of more permanent perspectives that you can access and draw upon on a permanent basis. The first example is connecting with a time in your life when you felt really powerful and really in control, like a trip, an adventure, being part of a team that did really amazing things. This can be an experience that awakened a part of you that you weren't always using, and it can feel really good. I call mine Power Julie, and she is really strong. She does kick-ass things. The primary way that I access her is to imagine myself at the gym lifting heavy weights because this is always a place that I felt confident and resourceful and strong. I was never intimidated by others, especially men at the gym. Now, another permanent perspective that I draw upon is uh, something I call London Julie, which represents the three-year time period that I lived and worked in England. I was constantly exploring and saying yes to new adventures, to trying new things, to taking big risks. This perspective serves me a lot, and it helps me to try on new things when I might be feeling hesitant or intimidated. So let's recap at their core of how models work. Basically, they bring in new information to us so that we can then realize and have different options and perspectives available to us to help us to make more empowered decisions. Now, I have a bunch of different models that I use with clients that I wanted to walk you through today. So why don't you go ahead and top up your coffee, pull up a chair, and I will explain to you how to use them and what each of them are going to give you. So let's start with the most complicated one. It is Patrick Lencioni's Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Now, this is a really, really powerful one, and I've used it with teams at offsites many times over the years, and it always delivers a good punch, and it helps me to pinpoint what is going on in the relationship dynamic of the team. And I'll tell you, 
It really identifies what the team needs to do to move closer to trust. So to visualize this model, picture a triangle in front of you with five different layers. At the bottom, or the widest layer, is trust. And then on top of that is conflict, and then commitment, and then accountability. And at the very top is results. So this model always gets a team to see visually where they are thriving and where they are having challenges. And there's an actual survey that goes along with this model, so you get hard data to accompany it. And each of the layers represents a different behavior of a cohesive team. And it's something that's dynamic, and so it's constantly changing over time. The thinking here is that we all have to be able to function at the lower levels, i.e. the trust, in order to move up the chain to be able to deliver the results. So this is a five-component model, and I would highly recommend it, along with Patrick Lencioni's uh, fable book called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Next up, I want to share a four-component model, which you've likely seen over the years. It's called the four stages of competence. And it represents the four different levels of learning that we go through when we learn and subsequently master a new skill. It will help you understand where you are situated in the process of mastering that new skill and teach you patience and compassion. At the bottom of the model is unconscious incompetence, where we don't know what we don't know. Ignorance is really bliss here. And at this stage, you don't understand how to do something, and it isn't even something that you register as a default in your realm because you don't even value or acknowledge the usefulness of the skill. So the individual person must recognize both their own incompetence and the value of the skill before moving on to the next level. The next level is on top of that, and that is conscious incompetence. And this is where you know something exists, but you don't know how to do it yet. This is essentially an unlearned or unobtained skill. In the third layer, we have conscious competence. This is where the individual understands or knows how to do something, but it may need to be broken down into steps for them to perform. And there is a heavy conscious involvement in executing the new skill. And then lastly, at the very top, we have conscious competence, where we practice the skill all the time consciously, and we don't even know that we're using it. We've basically mastered the skill, and it's second nature to us. We do it all the time. And we have so much practice with a skill that it becomes second nature and can be performed without even trying. So as a result, the skill can be done while executing another task, And we might even be able to teach it to others based on how we learned it and how long ago we learned it. So those are the two more complicated models at the end of the spectrum. Now I want to shift over to teach you two small but very mighty models that only have two, one, two components. Now while these models each only have two components, do not, I repeat, do not underestimate the power of these bad boys. They may only have two components, but in a way that makes them even more powerful. The first one, the growth model, is from the Center for Creative Leadership, and it has a horizontal line in between the two components. It gives you the opportunity to help people recognize if they're either in a growth or a fixed mindset. The thinking is this. You can only ever be operating in a growth or a fixed mindset, either above or below the line. And when you're operating above the line, you're committed to growth. When you're operating below the line, you are committed to being right. 
This one is so simple and obvious, it's genius in its simplicity because it doesn't give anyone any wiggle room at all. It's the ultimate in tough love. And when you ask people, where do you think you're operating right now? Above the line, committed to learning, or below the line, committing to being right? It becomes a truth teller. So we want to be really careful when we're using this model. We want to be really compassionate with it. We don't want to be arrogant when we're trying to call people out. Just because it's something that's obvious to us, it might not be obvious for them yet. So exercise a lot of curiosity, a lot of compassion. Instead of calling someone out, if you know they might be you know, a little defensive or having a problem owning it, you might be wanting to use the 2% truth rule, which is uh, something that we use in coaching. When someone doesn't want to own something, like they don't want to be defensive as part of their leadership, we say, I know you're not defensive, but what is the 2% truth that you are defensive? So we could ask them, if you're operating below the line, I know you're not fully operating below the line, but what is the 2% truth that you're operating below the line, right? Committed to being right. And if they're really resistant, we might want to, to pull that question out. And that always gets people a guaranteed way to own something if it's not fully at 100%. Now, the last model that I want to share with you is one that I created with a client years ago, and it's about trust and control. Two juicy topics, right? So I actually created this one before I learned about the Center for Creative Leadership's model, and um, it's interesting because it's visually set up very similar to them, except I never anchored trust at the top or the bottom. I simply introduce it like two sides of the same coin. And I say, when you are operating in trust, you don't need to control. And when you're operating in control, you are unable to operate in trust. So this is clearly a model about how we lead and how we manage relationships with others. So let me back up and tell you the story about how Sean, one of my clients, and I created this model together. So she had a great career as an IC in a really high-profile law firm here in Toronto, and she was ready for the next level in her career. She wanted to become a people manager. But as we all know, there are two major barriers to becoming a people manager. The first is actually getting yourself into the role. And then the second, and somewhat harder, is the challenging barrier of learning how to be the great leader that we always envisioned ourselves being, right? We knew what we needed to do, but the actual doing of it, that's the hardest part of all. Stepping into the role and having those people report to you. Now, this was especially difficult for Sean because, you see, Sean was the head of the PMO, what we call the Project Management Office. And so, as with many of us, her job was about details, but her job was really about details. Because, see, whenever the company did something really complicated, like open up a new office, it was always Sean and her team's job to make sure that all the details happened and the project stayed on schedule. So while it's hard for all of us to hand off our work and get out of the so-called weeds when we step into a new management role, it was especially hard for Sean. So over a series of coaching sessions and conversations, we developed this example of trust and control being two sides of one coin and how you can never occupy both of them at the same time. Every single time we talked about this, she kept getting the context that she needed and voila, the model was born. 
So Sean might not be using it anymore, but I'll tell you what, I'm using it all the time. All right, so grab a Sharpie, grab a piece of paper, or pull out your phone and write out something in the notepad. We have four of them that I want you to capture right here, right now. First, Patrick Lencioni's five dysfunctions of a team. Second, the four stages of competence. Third, the Center for Creative Leadership's above-below-the-line model. And last, but not least, the model for trust and control. Now let's talk about the circle of control, the title of this episode, which is a three-component model. So I'll manage your expectations by telling you that this is a very, very popular model that is taught and used a lot. So to visualize it, it has a set of three concentric circles, and the one at the bottom is called the circle of control. Now it represents everything that we have control over. Next, we move out to the next level, the circle of influence. And this is where we have some ability over what happens. Then we move out to the outer circle, the third, which is called the circle of concern. And within the circle of concern, we don't have any control at all over what happens. Now, this model is a great way to look at certain situations and understand what you can impact and what you can't. So a situation might be where you're feeling completely overwhelmed and emotionally flooded, which is normal. This happens to the best of us. So when you sit down with a model, it helps you to dissect and name the different parts of what's going on. So I always start with the bottom, with the circle of control. So you can inquire with yourself and say, okay, in this situation, What do I have control over? This gives you clarity over the other areas, and you can either name them or write them down. Then we start to make our way out to influence. With influence, we have some ability to impact, and so we start to draw apart what we can to influence. And then lastly, we name things that we have no control over at all, which is the third circle. Now, the beauty here is that you have now broken the situation into three different parts, and you have clarity over where you can impact yourself and where you have control and direct your attention and where you don't. So the best way for you to learn about how to use this model is to teach it to someone else. The first and the most important step, always, 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 is to ask permission to use it with them. We never want to create an environment where our team member feels like, and hey, would you be interested in learning more about it? Then once we have their permission, we introduce the model. And the best way to introduce it is with a personal example of how we have used it and walk something through the process in our personal life. Now, don't be afraid of explaining how you use it and how you customize it, that's what I find people enjoy the most. They like knowing about how you specifically would use something, and they're curious about that, and then they want to try that onto their current situation. And this is where using your good, powerful coaching questions is going to be helpful for you. As much as possible, prompt them to start to make this model their own as quickly as possible. Use questions like, where would you start with this model? What's the best approach here that you would apply to the situation? And as much as possible, get them to own it and walk through it. 
So this is a very obvious way to use it because your team member gets to see in real time an example of how it can be applied. But another great example of how to use this model is in your one-on-one team meeting as a generic resource for people to use in their back pocket and in the future. And to be honest, sometimes learning models and practicing them in a non-charged or non-urgent way can be a better way to learn them because we get to understand them more deeply. We get to absorb them better because there's no emotional charge or hijacking going on. Then, when we have the situation or opportunity to actually use them, we can pull them out as needed and dive right in. So bottom line, you can use models with a colleague in a few different ways. First, to explain a situation that they're currently navigating. And secondly, when they're not actually in a live situation, they're simply learning a teachable tool from you. Okay, let's recap this segment by looking at the circle of control. It works by identifying what you can control, it helps to give you a perspective, and it's a great one to teach your team to always give them a new perspective. Okay, it's time to start wrapping up this episode on leveraging the circle of control model. Aren't you excited about using either the circle of control or one of the other four models that you just learned about, either with yourself or a team member? Which one of them really resonated with you? Which one are you going to use first? I'm secretly hoping that even if you haven't put a lot of thought into models in the past, or like me, if maybe you felt a little bit intimidated by them, that you're able to step over that and try one out soon. You will learn so much about yourself and about others. And trust me, it will get easier each time you use them and each time you learn a new one. And as always, if you are inspired by the content that you learned today, please share it with a friend, share it with a colleague, or share it out on social media. You'll also want to subscribe to this podcast on my website at thecorporateyogi.com. And if you want to talk directly to me about either coaching or about using one of these amazing models with your team, you can book some time in my one-on-one calendar. And as always, please remember that any fear, any resistance that you hold inside of you is simply just your greatness in disguise.